The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I want to uh, just go on with uh, the exegesis of Galatians itself. And uh, when we get to chapter 2, then that, that would be the time to, um, to look at the uh, chapter that you were supposed to read for today on the historical stuff. But I uh, want to see if, if we can get through the rest of chapter 1 fairly quickly, which shouldn't be difficult. <clears throat> uh, so far as your lecture outline is concerned, we are therefore in, uh, on page 2 under uh, Roman numeral 2, the substantiating evidence. Um, that is, it substantiates the thesis that has just been set forth in verses 11 and 12. And um, as you have already read uh, for the chapter for last week, and you'll uh, read more about this eventually, I, I think it's important to make a distinction between the nature of the argument here in chapter 1 and what happens in chapter 2. Um, And my point is that when you get to the end of chapter 1, Paul has in effect concluded his argumentation in support of verses 11 and 12. Uh, Namely, he has now demonstrated that there's no way that you can explain the character of his teaching, the distinctiveness of his teaching, by reference to uh, human a revel, human instruction. And part of my point is this, that when you get to the end of chapter 1 and, and then move on to chapter 2, uh, at least 11 years have gone by, maybe 14 since his conversion. And so it has been demonstrated that the, his formation, you see, the period of his formation is now over. What you're dealing with in chapter uh, 2 is something else. I'm not saying it's not related, but uh, it has to do with two events that maybe have been brought up as uh, uh, questions um, that um, possibly undermine the nature of, of Paul's claim. In any case, if that way of looking at it is correct, then you can see why in my outline here I have uh, three pieces of um, uh, so substantiating material, the revelation itself in verses 15 to 16, then his pre-conversion experiences and his post-conversion experiences. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm changing the order in which I'm addressing these things. The revelation is in effect the positive evidence with regard to the divine nature of uh, Paul's gospel. And um, the thing that is important to notice here is the emphasis on uh, the gracious character of what God has done. Uh, Lightfoot, in his commentary, points out that 
there's an accumulation of terms here in verses 15 and 16, beginning of 16, that uh, all of which tells on one point, namely the sole agency of God as distinguished from Paul's own efforts, obviously. Uh, there's a strong predestinarian motif as part of, of this whole thing. But uh, you, you see what Lightfoot is getting at. Um, when it pleased God, you dock a sin. That's a strong term in, 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 uh, uh, that is in the context of, of the initiative. This is God's own, own good pleasure. When it pleased God, who set me apart, aphorizo, uh, again, this is electing kind of language. From my mother's womb, you know, even uh, uh, from my very birth, you see, this is before I had any chance to do good or bad, to use his language in, in Romans 9. Um, and called me, kaleo, again, a strong grace-type verb, because remember that kaleo in Paul is not just the general call, but it is the effective call. You know, God called me. That, that is an effectual thing. By his grace, takes caritas, as though you didn't have enough. Now he adds uh, the emphasis. And then apocalypse, to reveal, again, a, a divine activity uh, verb. So, so you see Lightfoot's point. There's verb after verb here, term after term, that... Uh, this accumulation makes it very point, very pointed that uh, Paul wants to emphasize uh, the sole agency of God as that which accounts for his message, not his own efforts, not his own development or whatever. There's a little bit of a uh, disagreement with regard to um, the significance of en amoy, to reveal his son in me. Is it in me or through me? Um, probably instrumental um, is going to fit well. Uh, already in, uh, for example, you have a parallel right in verse 24. Uh, they glorified God in me or through me. Possibly, you know, that, that also, I suppose, could be debated. Uh, there are a couple of other passages, 1 Timothy 1.16, 1 Timothy 1.16, also 2 Corinthians 13, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 3. On the other hand, this is Lightfoot's own uh, in, uh, understanding. Uh, Burton, and I am inclined to think that uh, Burton may have the, uh, the stronger uh, argument here, uh, believes that this enamoi ought to be viewed in the light of the so-called mystical interpretation. Now, not mystical in some uh, negative sense here, but, um, um, well, here's a, um, a comment. This is also the view, incidentally, of Betts and Bruce. And there's a, a Spanish uh, commentator that you've never heard about, but... Um, Gonzalez Ruiz is his name. He says, in a, in a given moment, uh, taking the Jewish veil that was uh, um, hiding it or um, uh, hiding it, 
he, uh, <laughs> how do you translate this, um, turned on directly in Paul the, the light of Christ so that uh, Paul in turn could irradiate uh, that light uh, to the Gentiles. Uh, you see the difference here is not so much to reveal his son through me, but to reveal his son in me uh, in the sense of um, uh, enlightening Paul with regard to who Christ was. Now that inevitably has the consequences of Paul becoming now an instrument. But um, you see the slightly different uh, focus on, on the uh, force of the enamoi. At any rate, the thing to keep in mind here is the, um, the emphasis on grace as supporting Paul's point of verses 11 and 12. I did not receive this. Uh, this is not something that uh, is according to man because I neither received it from a man nor was I taught it. It was purely a gracious work of God who even before I was born, you see, had chosen me, had separated me, and, and, and he revealed this thing to me. But uh, we can't stop there. We have to appreciate also what these verses tell us about uh, the character of Paul's apostleship and, and his own understanding of that. The verb aphorizo is a parallel elsewhere in Paul, namely in Romans chapter 1, the, in the uh, greeting of Romans, where you have a fuller expression. It isn't simply aphorisas me in Romans 1, he separated me. But uh, in, the, in the very prescript of Romans, uh, Paul calls himself kletos apostolos, uh, called an apostle, aphorismenos eis euangelion theou, separated for the gospel of God. And I think you have to look at both of those passages uh, together. Now, Burton says that uh, here in this passage, we have three uh, preparatory stages you have here preparation, there is predestination, there is call, there is revelation. And all of those stages are really part of, of God being involved in preparing for Paul uh, with a view to Paul's preaching Christ among the Gentiles, that is all who are in Gentile lands. If we can go back to Romans 1, you notice that in verse 5, uh, Paul makes a statement, through whom, referring to Christ, elabomen charin kai apostolain, we received grace and apostleship. Um, and then you have that famous expression about the hupakoe pisteos, the obedience of faith, uh, among all. Uh, all the nations for his uh, for his namesake. And uh, the uh, term charin again shows up in Galatians 2 verses 7 through 9. I'm trying to argue here that uh, Paul uses the term charis 
of a gift, you see, as a specific way of referring to the gift of apostleship. It is not just a general notion of, of gifting, but it, it becomes specialized to refer specifically to the apostolic gift. And that um, the further thing that's important to appreciate is that it is always related to uh, his being called to minister to the Gentiles. All of this, by the way, fits very, very naturally with the character of Paul's conversion, of Saul's conversion, as that is described for you in the book of Acts, in all three places. Remember, in, in chapter 9, verse 15, Acts 9, 15, chapter 22, verse 21, 22-21, and chapter 26, verses 16 through 18, 16 through 18. All three descriptions of Saul's conversion focus sharply on the uh, goal of what uh, God is doing here, and that is to prepare him to preach to the Gentiles. And uh, as you consider, you know, parenthetically here, as you consider the problem Excuse me, the problem of uh, the historicity of the book of Acts over against the epistles of Paul. Uh, this is one of those uh, points that um, uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with the work of um, William Paley back in the beginning of the 19th century, uh, middle, whatever who was very interested in, in the evidences of Christianity and, and wrote a, a very interesting book called Horae Paulinae, in which he uh, shows um, all of the correspondences between Acts and the epistles of Paul, demonstrating in his case, it wasn't so much the historicity of, of Acts that he was concerned with, but the authenticity of the letters of Paul. And showing all of these subtle correspondences, uh, which uh, Paley argued, look, somebody who was uh, really interested in, um, <coughs> excuse me, impersonating Paul in these letters, and who might have tried to... Uh, you know, pull the wool over his reader's eyes, would have never, it would have never occurred to him to make these comments that in, in the subtlest of ways show the legitimacy of, uh, and, and the truth, the authenticity of what's going on here over against the material in the book of Acts. And you can turn it around as well. And uh, the point here would be that the way in which the book of Acts describes the nature of Saul's conversion in such a fundamental way comports with Paul's own understanding of his apostleship. Uh, that, that really is very important. Now, also of uh, significance here is the Old Testament background uh, to Paul's language uh, in verses 15 and 16. In Jeremiah, particularly in Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 5, Jeremiah makes the point before um, 
this is in response to Jeremiah's reluctance. He says, before, before I formed you in the womb, I already knew you. En koilia. Protume plasaise en koilia. I'm using this septuagint, of course. Epistamaise. And before you came out of your mother's, no, before you came out of the womb, Heikiakase, uh, I sanctified you. Prophetein eis ethne tethekase, I have set you as a prophet to the nations. Uh, you might also at your leisure take a look at Isaiah chapter 41 verse 9. Um, and you might also look at Isaiah 49 verse 1. Suggesting not three distinct stages in the process here, as Burton uh, suggested, but rather the simultaneous character of, of being separated and being called. Um, because there you also have, uh, this is 49.1, Ek koilias me trosmo, ek kalasen tonomamu. Out of my mother's womb, he called my name. So you see the kaleo, and the being separated from the mother's womb seem to be simultaneous ideas as opposed to completely different, but I, w I don't know that I would really insist on that. So, um, you know, theologically, in, in, in terms of uh, seeking to understand Paul's conception of what he's doing, uh, it is really, really important to appreciate how the language of the prophetic call in Isaiah and Jeremiah seems to have... Um, um, at least guided uh, Paul's uh, perception of, it, of uh, his own uh, ministry. It is a prophetic ministry to the Gentiles. It may sound strange because Isaiah and Jeremiah we usually think of strictly in terms of, uh, of Israel. But, uh, of course, Paul can see beyond uh, what what may see, what may appear to be uh, the apparent meaning, because there's plenty in Isaiah that uh, that is looking at the Gentile world and not just uh, at Israel. All right, let's uh, go on then to um, going back now to verses 13 and 14 to um, look at uh, his Paul's pre-conversion experience. Now remember, this is still part of the argument that his gospel cannot be uh, regarded as a human gospel. It is a brief paragraph, verses 13 and 14, and uh, it, it, it is really a reminder because, remember verse 13 begins with the, verse, verse, uh, sorry, the verb ekusata, you have heard. So it's a reminder to the Galatians about uh, three things, as you see there. Uh, the element of persecution, uh, his Pharisaic uh, connections, and uh, the element of, of preparation that was involved in that uh, during that period. With regard to persecution, uh, the point here is to to remind the Galatians that his own attitude toward the church prior to his conversion was hostile. He was intent on destroying it. 
And uh, here again, there's an interesting parallel uh, between the way in which Paul phrases it and the way in which Acts describe it. Uh, when Paul speaks about um, uh, verse 13, Kathu perbolein ediokon ten ecclesion to theukai eporthun autain. And I was destroying it, probably one of these connotative use of the imperfect. I was attempting to destroy it. And uh, you have um, the comments, for instance, in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, elumainetot uh, in ecclesia, and that's also a pretty strong verb. And in chapter 9, verse 21, um, isn't this the one, porthesas, the same verb as Paul used in Galatians, porthesas tus epicalumenus to onoma tuta. So it, it's kind of interesting that... Um, Acts should use the same language um, that Paul uses in describing his experience. And by the way, uh, to say that he was persecuting te ecclesian tutheu, that really um, lends emphasis because it suggests the enormity of the sin. Uh, it is the church of God that he was uh, persecuting. Secondly, uh, the element of Phariseeism. Now, the main clause of um, this little, this rather long sentence points out his advance in Judaism. I was advancing in Judaism, but the emphasis really falls on, on a clause that is the subordinate clause, if you look at it grammatically, uh, when he says, Zelotes huparchon ton patriconu paradasion, being zealous of, being exceedingly zealous of uh, the uh, traditions of my fathers. You see what I'm getting at? That is obviously a um, subordinate clause. The main clause uh, is you have the main verb proekopton? I was progressing in Judaism beyond my the rest of my contemporaries, and then you have the subordinate clause being zealous. But even though grammatically it is subordinate, it is very very evident that there is a particular emphasis uh, placed on that uh, on that clause. And here is precisely, and I I, I hope I'm not overstating it. Uh, but here is precisely the key to the letter, if you will. I, I think if, if, if you really appreciate what's going on here, it can be very helpful in sorting through some of the problems, uh, exegetical problems that come up in, in, in chapter 3 about the law and uh, so on. Because you see, why didn't Paul say specifically that he was progressing in tonamo, in the law? Why does he describe it this way in Judaism? Why does he particularly use the expression, the traditions of the fathers? Well, because you see, progressing in the law, strictly speaking, is not something that Paul necessarily regrets. It is possible, I suppose, that the expression here of the uh, uh, Traditions of the Fathers has a broad national reference. Uh, 
but um, it is much more likely, much more likely to be taken in the, with that semi-technical nuance for the oral tradition. Uh, the, the traditions of my fathers, I think you really have to um, uh, link that up with um, passages like Mark 7 and Matthew 15, which speak about the traditions of the elders. And so you're talking about that Hatorah Shebe Alpe, the law that is upon the mouth, the oral tradition, which eventually takes, you know, written form in the Mishnah. In the uh, parallels in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, there is an explicit contrast between the uh, traditions of the elders and the, the command of God or the word of God. Hey, entole to theu, halagos to theu. And not only is there a contrast between that oral tradition and the word of God, but the point is made that the tradition of the elders, in effect, is annulling. You know, you have the verbs like kurao, atheteo, parabaino, transgressing. So the, the traditions of the elders are being used to annul the word of God. Now, what I'm suggesting to you here is that by this rather brief description of his pre-conversion experience, Paul is telling you where the focus was, the oral tradition, and you know your question is very important here, it isn't just the Old Testament, Judaism is for him now the oral tradition. And see later I will try to argue that when Paul speaks about the law in chapter 9, uh, it's probably not a good idea to dis chapter three rather dissociate uh, Namas in Galatians from this oral law. Now this gets very tricky, and uh, we'll have to spend quite a bit of time on, on that when we get there. But um, uh, I, I am convinced that Paul's experience in in the in, in the first century synagogue has to be taken into account if you want to understand the way that he uh, speaks about the law in chapter 3. So just uh, said that, put it back, you know, in your files or whatever, and when we get to chapter 3, we'll have to look at that a little bit more carefully. Well, the whole discussion of the law, beginning especially with verse 10. The last thing that I want to, wanted to comment here is this idea of preparation. Uh, and uh, the reason I have, have it uh, is that I think it's important for us to ask the question, well, now, wait a second here. What is Paul's point uh, about talking uh, about his previous experience, his pre-conversion experience? What, what's, what's he trying to accomplish by... Uh, going back to this period. The usual answer that is given, I think, is that Paul is trying to prove that he didn't get his gospel from his Jewish teachers before his conversion. Remember his thesis. He wants to prove that his gospel 
uh, is not human in character, he did not receive it from man, you know, and so on. And so it does make sense, at least at first sight, to argue, all right, so the very first thing he says is, you know, look, I certainly didn't get this from my previous teachers, because on the contrary, I was uh, uh, progressing in Judaism, in the oral traditions. My problem with that uh, question, with that way of looking at it, is whoever would have claimed that Paul got his gospel from his uh, pre-Christian experience? Something just doesn't sound right here. You know, we're doing some mirror reading and assuming, well, uh, Paul is trying either responding to an accusation or anticipating some kind of explanation about where he got his gospel. But who, you know, why would it occur to anyone to say that uh, Paul's distinctive message comes from his pre-conversion experience? Burton, in his commentary, looks at it a little differently. He says, what Paul is trying to prove is that during that period, he was not under the influence of the Christians. Now, I think that's a little better. You see, now, now we're getting to something that you can sink your teeth into. Um, you cannot explain the nature of my gospel by arguing that prior to my conversion, I came under the influence of, of Christians preaching the gospel. Because that experience, because my life prior to that, was exactly of, of an opposite character, hostile to the Christian gospel and doing everything to destroy it. Lightfoot gets even closer. As Lightfoot puts it, the nature of, of Paul's training was such that no human agency could have brought about the change. It required a direct interpos interposition from God. Now, if Lightfoot is correct here, uh, these verses, 13 and 14, are not intended as an independent proof of anything, but only as a preparation for what's coming in verses 15 and 16. In other words, the real purpose of verses 13 and 14 is not that these are themselves proof that he didn't get his gospel from human beings, Rather, the point of these verses is to demonstrate the need for a drastic conversion, for a gracious intervention on the part of God. You get my point? Paul is saying, look, I was so far down the wrong track that the only way <laughs> that you could explain my preaching is by going to verses 15 to 16 and 16. A gracious intervention on God's part. And, and therefore, 13 and 14 by themselves are not intended to prove anything as such, but only to explain why the only way you can account for his gospel is by direct revelation from God, by some kind of, of uh, direct uh, intervention from God.
bets uh, also deals with the passage in a way that I think uh, supports that. Well, let's let's move on. I'll, I'll give you time for questions in a minute, but uh, uh, let me try to say something about these post-conversion experiences in verses 16 to 24. We can go through this fairly quickly because uh, the material here is straightforward and there are not a lot of exegetical problems. Uh, number one here, I have these initial experiences um, recounted in verses 16b to 17. Immediately after my conversion, he says, I did not consult with flesh and blood, that is, with any human being, and nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who had been apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia, and uh, then again I returned to Damascus. The eutheos immediately, uh, and the explicit negatives, u prosanathemen, u neothan, again, all of that makes you wonder whether he's not responding to some kind of specific uh, uh, rumor that was going around. Um, The first set of experiences that I had were not in the context of the, of the Jerusalem church. Uh, Burton, who believes that the uh, reference to Arabia must really be uh, in connection with the whole Nabataean kingdom and not Damascus specifically, argues, Burton argues, I think perceptively, that the three-year period must have been one of solitude and prolonged reflection rather than missionary activity. And uh, there, there may be some truth to that, but I think um, you have to balance that out with the way in which Acts chapter 9, verse 20 describes it. Eutheos ekerusen. Now, I think that, that Luke's language in Acts 9 does allow for you know a breather period, if you will. I, I don't think that uh, that has to be uh, pushed that uh, the next day after Ananias came and, and uh, healed his uh, blindness, he was out preaching. I think you, you, you can allow for this breather kind of period that, that Burton is talking about, time of reflection. Uh, the question then is whether Acts 9.19b is in conflict with Galatians because... Um, there you have the statement, uh, statement um, that in 19b, in, in Acts 9, verse 19b, Luke says, um, He was with the disciples for some days. And um, some people have argued that that is in conflict with Paul's claim not to have had contact, you see, with Christians. And, and, and I think the answer uh, is a fairly obvious one. Paul doesn't really say that he excluded all contact. And in fact, that very element helps us to identify the selectivity that characterizes uh, Paul's narrative. Uh, he is not trying to account for every detail, but he does make the point 
I did not have contact, I did not consult with the, uh, those who were apostles before me, and I did not go up to Jerusalem. Paul does not say, I had no contact whatever with any Christians. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32, and, and verse 33 also. 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, which uh, seem to uh, deal with this same period, um, suggests that Paul must have done considerable preaching, you know, if King Aretas wanted to come after him. That, that's uh, part of what's going on here. And then, uh, secondly, the visit to Jerusalem verses 18 to 20. Uh, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Historesa Kefan, we'll talk about that a little, verb, a little bit. Uh, and I remained with him for 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except uh, James, the brother of the Lord. Uh, uh, C.F.D. Moore has this, no, C.H. Todd, I think, was the one who had this great line about, uh, we may be sure that uh, Paul and Peter did more than just talk about the weather. Uh, and uh, it is totally unreasonable to think that Paul would not have asked Peter about you know, his personal experiences with Jesus and, and all of that. And here again, it's, it's, it, that is helpful for us to realize that, that Paul is not making some kind of absolute comment about, I never heard a word about this from anybody. You know? um, but to say that I was only with him 15 days is Paul's way of saying, we all know that somebody cannot be discipled in 15 days. You see, the setting here is the setting of, of rabbis. You would study under a rabbi for several years and memorize everything that he told you. That's the only way you learn in those days. You, know, you just repeat after with your teacher. And then your whole formation was the result of that period, three, four years, whatever. And uh, so you cannot account for the character of, of Paul's distinctive ministry uh, on the basis of a couple of weeks' uh, discussion with Peter. <clears throat> to put it differently, I think the reference to the 15 days reveals that the Judaizers must have accused Paul of prolonged interaction and training such as normally would have been expected before commissioning someone. Um, there's another little problem in verse 19, you know, um, is James being regarded here as an apostle. James, remember this is not James the brother of John who was one of the twelve, but James the brother of Jesus who was, who later became a leader in the church. And uh, it is a question of some importance whether James is to be regarded as an apostle or not, or not. And I per personally, I think that uh, this verse does not necessarily indicate that, because the A may in a clause like this uh, probably can be understood in, in the sense of, um, and I didn't see any of the other apostles. The only uh, the only one that I did see was James. You see. Uh, that is quite a, a possible way of translating an AMA clause, which may or may not restrict specifically the, the verb by itself or the whole idea. But, but that is really another question. 
Let's not minimize the oath of verse 20. Hade grafo he mini due nopion to theu hoti That's strong language. It is an oath. I, I am swearing by God. That's really what Paul is saying, that I am not lying. And obviously, he would not use in this kind of language uh, if he were, uh, to me it is obvious, maybe not to other people, if, uh, if he were not responding to some accusation. And then finally, verses 21, uh, 23, and 20, sorry, 21, 24, the uh, period when he was in Syria and Cilicia. I remember this is the point where in Acts chapter 9, Paul is ministering to the Hellenists there in Palestine, in, in near Jerusalem, and the brethren get very nervous, and they put Paul in the ship, and they, you know, just ship him out to Asia Minor. We don't want any more trouble here. That's not quite Paul's version of it, but uh, that's part of what's going on. So he has this long period of at least 10, 11 years in Cilicia, in, in um, um, Tarsus and surrounding areas. And during all this period, he says, I was unknown by face to the churches in Judea. So I did not have prolonged contact with the Christians there. Only thing is, they were aware of the fact that even though I had persecuted the church, now I was now um, preaching the gospel to others. And uh, that was a cause for, for thanksgiving and for glorifying God. So, by and large, people hadn't met me, and that fact confirms the brevity of my stay. But on top of that, there was their approval of his ministry. And the implication of this last point may be that since he hasn't changed his message, the Judaizers must be the recent innovators, you see. People were happy with me, they glorified God, and I haven't changed my message. So if uh, there's some happiness here, it must be the Judaizers, uh, you know, by implication, who are the cause of, of the problems. Any questions in chapter 1? No, I didn't quite say that. I didn't quite say that. I... What I said was that the reference to um, Judaism and the traditions of the fathers, of my fathers in, in chapter 1, helps us to identify what is Paul thinking about. You know, this is his world. I think it is a, uh, a mistake to go to the extreme. As a matter of fact, someone like Daniel Fuller, Dan Fuller does argue that namas in um, you know, verse, chapter 3, verse 12, doesn't mean the law. It means the Judaizers' misinterpretation of the law. And I think that's, uh, that's extreme and, and misguided. But like everything else, you know, there's a measure of truth in what he's saying. And, the, and I think Ritterboss puts it a little better. When Paul speaks about namas, uh, particularly in a negative sense, it is not the law pure and simple out there, but it is normal as he's used to seeing it operating in the synagogue of his day. And um, it, 
I mean, that requires a certain amount of nuancing for a variety of reasons, and when we get to Chapter 3, we'll have to deal with that. All I'm saying at this point is that um, let's not just ignore verse 14 and the way Paul phrases it in verse 14. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a clue to, as I said, put us in, in, in Paul's world. And it, I think it would be um, unreasonable to think that when Paul gets to chapter 3, he somehow can dissociate completely from the first century synagogue and talk about the Old Testament law, you know, pure and simple, without some of the associations it would have in the context of the polemic. That's all I'm saying at this point. Okay, chapter 2 deals with two special cases. And again, to repeat what I had said before, my point is that by the end, when you come to the end of chapter 1, the basic argumentation has finished. Paul has already made his case. At least 11 years, probably 14 years, have passed since his conversion. His gospel, his ministry is established. So that element, you know, it, it's, it's already taken care of. The problem is, in my reading of, of the, uh, my, my mirror reading, if you will, is that the Judaizers are arguing that there were two events in Paul's life that mark him as a renegade. When, when you put both of those events together. One was a meeting that he had with the Jerusalem apostles in which he submitted himself to them. You know, he recognized that, that his authority came from them. But then, at a later point, in a time of confrontation with Peter in Antioch, he shows that uh, he had changed his colors, and now he had become a renegade. So he has to deal with those two events. Now the epita that begins this section is the third occurrence of the word. You have one also in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, the other in verse 21. And perhaps no passage in the whole New Testament is more important than this one for the whole question of, of historical reconstruction of the early church. And as you know, the possibilities are that it refers to Acts 11, the end of Acts 11, that famine visit, or to Acts 15, or to neither of them, because... Uh, Acts cannot be trusted anyway. Or to both of those meetings because uh, the writer of Acts just got mixed up and separated them into two different meetings or something. You know. But uh, the basic question is either Acts 11 or 15. And uh, what I would like to do is not to try to settle that question as our initial problem 
but rather to try to exegete the passage first, to try to get a sense of what is the point of this narrative, what, what is Paul really, really trying to communicate. And once we feel that we know what's happening, then let's try to identify the occasion. So let's assume for the moment, uh, just as a working hypothesis, that Paul is responding to a charge by the Judaizers. And, and the charge may have gone something like this. Paul, at one point in his ministry, was required to come to this summit meeting, submit in private to the three, agree to obey their instructions. And that is proven by the fact that he began to collect funds for the Christians in Judea. The collection. So that's what I'm thinking the accusation is. Uh, Paul started, you know, collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem, and that is, in a sense, the, the obvious uh, uh, proof that he had agreed to submit himself to whatever the uh, the three apostles might say to him. Now, uh, first of all, let's look at the characters that are playing out in this uh, drama. There are three groups. First of all, you have the, the anti-circumcision party. That's Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. And there are a couple of things that need to be stressed. Uh, first, Paul's insistence that he went to Jerusalem by apocalypses, by revelation, and not in obedience to a human command. That's obviously the implication here. Second, the verb anatithemi uh, probably indicates that what Paul was doing is submitting information. You may want to, uh, at your leisure, take a look at uh, 2 Maccabees, chapter 3, verse 9. 2 Maccabees 3, 9, which relates a... Um, there's this fellow, Heliodorus, and he submits a report of the temple treasure to the priest Onias for confirmation. Uh, the thought is not necessarily one of Onias' superiority, um, but uh, just submitting information, a report of some kind, and that, that may be a fairly uh, valuable and valid parallel to what's happening here. Another characteristic of um, the uh, the first couple of verses here, this is, to me, is really, really important. The way in which Paul describes what's going on here reveals the, the tensions of that meeting at the outset uh, by pointing out that this act was necessitated by a very serious danger, namely the possibility that Paul's work might come to naught. You know what I'm talking about in verse 2? Uh, I did this in private to those who seem to be something. Lest may pose eis kenon trecho e edraman. Lest all the work that I had done and that I was still doing might come to naught. Um, Paul, for all of his uh, conviction about God's uh, sovereignty, 
does not go around saying, well, you know, God will do this anyway, so I don't need to worry. Um, he is obviously deeply concerned about the possible implications of what might happen. And uh, you really cannot overlook this or, or try to downplay it or something. Paul goes to, his, to this meeting worried. I think he's worried. I think he knows that if things don't go right, his ministry could be destroyed, his ministry to the Gentiles. <clears throat> so that's the anti-circumcision party. Then we have this group referred to as Hoi Docuntes. Hoi Docuntes. Uh, that same uh, phrase appears also in verse 6. Uh, in verse 6, it uh, appears twice, actually. One of them is accompanied by the phrase, A-N-I-T, that is, those who seem to be something. Those who seem to be something. And the phrase occurs again in verse 9, with stuloi I, those who seem to be pillars. The reference is obviously to James, the brother of our Lord, Peter, and John. But the question that arises is whether this way of describing them implies bad feelings toward them. You know, those who seem to be something. They're not really anything, you know. But they just seem to be, or they, whatever. If you look at Burton in his commentary, he, is, he very decisively denies any such negative nuance. In his view, the description simply means the men of esteem, the men of esteem. Similarly, if you look at Bauer's lexicon, he translates as the, the influential men. Now, uh, here in my notes, I have some discussion of the para various parallels that have been adduced in favor of, of uh, this positive meaning of the phrase, and I don't want to take the time to do that here. But uh, when you look at them carefully, you, you realize that um, these are not absolute usages of the, of the phrase. If you have, you know, they seem to be something or other, and then the rest of the clause uh, has a positive idea, okay. But if you look at even parallels where the hoidokuntis is by, by itself, and that's what I mean by an absolute usage. Uh, the, uh, the evidence is not all that clear at all. And um, I am not sure that there's any parallel, really unambiguous parallel, to the use of hoidokuntes in an absolute usage with a positive sense. Almost, uh, I mean, most of the references um, seem to be uh, negative. And the ones that are positive always have an explicit complement. Uh, 